Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 Festival. So welcome, welcome, welcome to um, Sydney Writers' Festival 2021. My name's Suzanne Leal. I'm the author of novels The Deceptions and The Teacher's Secret. I'm also the host of Thursday Book Club, a friendly, relaxed place online for readers to gather. We are, of course, on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. But now, it's my great pleasure to introduce my guests. Professor Danielle Selemeyer is a philosopher whose work focuses on human rights, ethics and justice. She's the Deputy Director of the Sydney Environment Institute. Danielle lives in an intentional multi-species community on the south coast of New South Wales. She wrote her memoir, this beautiful book here, Summertime, Reflections on a Vanishing Future While Facing the Devastating Black Summer Fires. Welcome to you, Danny. Thank you. Dr. Jonica Newby is a science reporter, author, TV presenter and director. She's best known for her two decades on ABC's popular weekly science program, Catalyst, and you, many of you will know her from that. She has twice won the Eureka Award, Australia's most prestigious science journalism prize, and is a recipient of the World TV Award. Known for presenting stories with a rare honesty and intimacy, Jonica's new book, this one here, Beyond Climate Grief, A Journey of Love, Snow, Fire and an Enchanted Beer Can, charts her struggles navigating the emotional turmoil of climate change. Welcome to you, Jonica. Thank you. So we're here. We're on stage. It's all started. Are you feeling excited? Jonica. Oh, definitely. I mean, everyone's so thrilled to be out, aren't we? Um, although I must say the smoke in the air is, I don't know about anyone else, a little bit triggering, both physically and emotionally for the fires. How about you, Danny? How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I wish there were a few more donkeys and pigs in the audience. I'd probably <laughs> feel a bit more comfortable and at home, but people will do. <laughs> As I said, Danny's a multi-species expert. I, by contrast, are happiest in the ocean, preferably with a mask and snorkelling and watching the underwater world before me. Jonica, you're a bit different. You're more a woman of the snow. What is it you love about the snow? So we all have places that we fall in love with, just as we fall in love with people. And I have come to call these places heart places. And one of mine is the snow. And the funny thing is I fell in love with snow before I ever met snow because I grew up in Perth. Well, there's not a lot of snow there. But of course, when you look at children's fairy tales or, uh, and stories, they're full of snow. You know, Narnia, you go through a cupboard and you're in this fantasy place. Um, imagine Lord of the Rings set in the tropics, you know doesn't have quite the same majesty. And, and so snow, it sort of sums up adventure and magic and fantasy and, and it spoke to me. And when I moved east to uh, start with Catalyst, I got to fall in love with a real snow place 
and that is Kunamanamaji, uh, Australia's snowy mountains. And they're every bit as fantastical as the things I'd read about as a child. You know, you've got wombats that make little snow caves, you've got pygmy possums that are hiding under a blanket of snow. You go above the tree line and it's like Mars only white. And then the snow gums, they're, they're magical trees. They're, they, they sort of twist and turn at these ruby reds and golds and silver colours and then they spread their arms and their leaves coat with ice and glitter like chandeliers. So it became a separate fantasy place to my real world of science reporting until the two began to clash. Would you like me to talk about that later um, or go into that now? Yeah, we'll, we'll move to that later. I suppose okay. what I want to like to do now is just set up with Danny. We have Woman of Snow, um, I'd say perhaps Woman of Water. You're a woman of rainforest and of mm. land. Tell me, you have a particularly spectacular property, as I understand, as described in your book. Tell me how you first found that property and what your, your emotions were about mm. it. So it's beautiful that Jonica talked about the wardrobe because when you drive up and down, you cross the river twice and then you drive and there's a canopy of trees that you drive through that opens up to the valley where we live. And I've often thought about it as the wardrobe or the, you know, the in... Um, the lake that you jump into and move into another world. So mm -hmm. this similar notion of crossing a threshold into mm. another world, which is a bit magical and where things don't work the way that the normal world works. So it has that quality. Um, but I wanted to say a little bit in answer to your question about why, why we went there. Mm. So I have, you know, you said that I was a philosopher, so I have long had uh, a fascination and also a real concern about how human beings are and the way that we experience ourselves is somehow made of radically different stuff to everybody else and everything else. So there's animals and environment and then there's humans who have these special attributes of mind or soul or something that separates us in this really radical way. And along with many other people, you know, I've come to see that that way of understanding ourselves as not only separate from but better than in this hierarchy is really one of the root causes of environmental catastrophe and the way in which we treat beings other than humans. And I got to a point where I felt like if I was going to transform myself to become a different type of human being, it couldn't just be an abstract exercise. You know, who was I going to hang out with? Who was I going to spend my time with? Where were my feet going to pass every day? Who was I going to live with? So you said I live in, a, in an intentional multi-species community. So moving to this place was very much about learning to be human in a different way, not just amongst other human beings, where we are in this circle of confirming that we're so special and so different, but where I would be called by another set of beings who are also experiencing the world, who are also making sense of what it is to live during these times. And that's very much what happened. You know, you, you take yourself there and then there is a world around you that calls you into being in a very different way. And like Jonica said, it's a love affair. It's not a conceptual matter. You start to fall in love with the moss 
and with the animals, and you start to form relationships with them. And the relationships are multi-directional. It's not any longer about you doing something. It's about what the land does to you, which is something that, of course, the indigenous peoples of this country have been teaching us for a long time, that the land doesn't belong to us, we belong to the land. And living in the rainforest in the last few years, watching and feeling literally the life being pulled out of the rainforest through the drought, and then where we'll get to the fires, meant that this was no longer an abstract matter. It's no longer, for those of us, and I'm sure it's true for many people here, for those of us who are in love with the world in which we are embedded, climate change is not an abstract matter. It's having a love affair shattered. And it's interesting you use the word love affair because what's fascinating about both these books is that they are actually love songs. They're love songs to the environment. But on top of that, they're studies of fear, studies of fear for the future of the environment in the wake of climate change. Now, what I wanted to do um, is just go very briefly right back to basics. Really basic question for you, Jonica. What, in your words, is climate change? What exactly is it? Well, coming back to... I didn't get to talk yet about what actually set me on a completely different journey, but it is, for each of us personally, an attack on our heart places. And so, obviously, climate change rapidly changes the temperature so rapidly that our pace of evolution can't keep up. Let's put it very simply. So to go back to my personal moment where the, where the intellectual suddenly went from, I'm a science reporter, I understand this, to the emotional, oh my God, this is going to really rob us of something that matters to me. For me, it was on a hillside in Japan um, where I was, uh, I was having a great time, you know, I was uh, skiing powder for the first time, I was hanging out with Swiss ski instructors on holidays, and all of a sudden I went, hang on, what's the Swiss ski instructor doing here in the snow on holidays? Um, it's January, his busiest time of year. So I asked him and he said, um, you know, I came here to find good snow. <laughs> so I was a bit shocked and I said, what? And apparently Switzerland had had a green Christmas that year. And later that week, half the Great Barrier Reef died. And it had never occurred to me that my magical place, my place through the door, through the gateway, could be affected in this way. And I was kind of almost struck by this idea that I'm living Lord of the Rings now, you know, that, that actually this, this inchoate threat that is climate change is like the gates of Mordor coming and sweeping across the land. And it's literally black coal versus white snow. I mean, the symbolism is astonishing. But to get back to your climate change question, Apart from the emotional and, and imaginative impact this has, snow, of course, um, provides drinking water for billions of people. It, it holds the water and then lets it out over summer. Snow is white, so it reflects light. And uh, that albedo effect, and, and the seasonal snows come and go across the Northern Hemisphere each year, those actually are helping keep the planet cool. So we lose that and we get another one of these runaway tipping point things. So, 
So climate change is almost, I've had to personify it, believe it or not, as a science reporter, I ended up personifying it in the book as the beast because it's the only way I can sort of deal with, with facing it and not turning away. I had to name it. And moving on from that, that's what climate change is. What is climate grief? It's a term that you use a lot in your book. How, what is this for well, one you? One of the reasons I put that term on the cover is I think that there's, I think, especially since we hit 2020 and the reality of climate change is starting to sink in, I think a lot of people have got these, all these emotions um, that they're not, we're not really reckoning with and so we just keep them inside and don't know how to express them. There are a lot of words, eco-anxiety, um, uh, for example, solastalgia, a lot of which make it sound like a pathology, like a technical thing, um, like something's wrong with you. And when I came across the word climate grief, I realised that, because after that snow thing, I went and researched all the snow, and I ended up plunging into a profound depression. For the first time, I actually saw antidepressants. And in all my years on the planet, I'd not done that. And this was because of my climate grief. I later learnt the term climate grief, and I thought, that's it, and it gives you permission to feel, to feel it. Um, so I wanted to give a name to what so many of us are feeling, and of course, climate grief is many, many things. Um, it's many emotions, but it's also something like any grief that you can move through and, and actually be, have almost post-grief growth, <laughs> to paraphrase post-trauma growth. And I think that's, that's the journey of the book, is how do I live a good and happy life under the weight of this fearsome knowledge? I set out on a quest to ask other people <laughs> to help me to do that. Thank you. Danny, you've heard from Jonica about when this abstract concept of mm. climate change became concrete and she's talked about the moment of that. Did you have such a moment? Absolutely. And, you know, I've always believed that transformation is a curve, that I didn't believe that there was a quantum shift, but there was a quantum shift for me. And it was in October 2019 when the rainforest around... Gon the Gondwana rainforest in northern New South Wales around Dorigo started to burn. Because rainforests don't burn. And... You know, all of us who have lived our lives in Australia know that fire is part of the landscape of this country. And we moved to a rainforest under the illusion that we were somehow protected, that our rainforest wouldn't burn. And I remember the moment. Um, there was a man who was on Twitter, and he put on Twitter one shot of this extraordinary rainforest land within which he had lived for the last 20 years. And then next to it was a pan of this charred, blackened landscape that looked like a nuclear explosion had been through there. It was eviscerated. And that was what had become of the rainforest. And that day, we started to make uh, emergency escape plan, we started to work out what was going to happen because I understood, and I think this is so critical, that understanding has to be in your body, that so, so much of our relationship with environmental destruction is very abstract because look at us, we live, most people who will be here, and certainly true for me, live very privileged lives in the global north where we live within systems that protect us, 
And so we're, we're confronted with stories about climate change, but it remains at this level of abstraction, so we think that it's either somewhere else, it's someone else, or it's sometime in the future. And in that moment, in my body, I understood that it was here, and it was now, and it was me. And when exactly did it become you? You're talking about the, the, the northern rainforest. You're in the southern rainforest. When did that actually become you and what happened? In, so the, um, the fire started to burn in the south in late November and it was burning from further south to us, so we're just north of the Shoalhaven River. And it's interesting that Jonica used the, or uses in, in your book the notion of the beast because the fire was crouching on the other side of the river and coming up to the river and then moving back and coming up to the river and moving back. And we knew as soon as the fire crossed the river, there's nothing but bushland between us and the river and that at that point we would no longer have that buffer of protection. In around mid-December, we asked someone to come up, a woman who works for the Rural Fire Service, who also knows a lot about animals, to come up to the land and talk to us about what might we do to protect the animals. And so we moved fences around and we, put them, we took all of the wood out of the paddocks. And then when I recognised the nature of these fires, because these fires were qualitatively different to any fires that have burnt in Australia before, Animals were dying even in cleared pastures. The fires were moving, they could move on oxygen alone. They didn't need the fuel of bushland to burn through. Animals were dying even when the fire hadn't passed through a paddock where they were because the oxygen was being taken out of the air because the fires were so fierce. Night of the 27th of December, I went to bed. As usual, during that period, I didn't sleep. And in the middle of the night, I realised that everybody needed to be taken out. Of course, the native animals, the wild animals, they can't be taken out. But all of the domesticated animals with whom I lived, I realised that they needed to be taken to somewhere relatively safe because you know, as I say in the book, safe is one of the, safety was one of the casualties of the 2019-2020 fires. I'm going to put, park that story there because it's, it's described so beautifully in the book and you really need to read the prose that, that Danny uses to get the full extent of, of this fear of these, these extraordinary fires. Now, Jonica, you're not from that area, you're not from the area of the fire, but the fires came to you in a very personal sense during 2019. Well, ironically, I actually live very close to Danielle, we've just discovered. So no, I was actually surrounded by fire too, I just wasn't personally under threat yes. um, because we've moved to Jeroa on the south coast, so being on the coast there, but I must admit there was one day where I thought we were going to get it. Um, so it was very much a lived experience for me. So yeah, to backtrack, actually, um, before I mention uh, how the fires really came and got very personal, when I set out to write the book, I had a very different plan for it, you know, because um, I, I actually was influenced by Lee Sales' Any Ordinary Day. I thought this was a great model as a science reporter to write a book about how to get through climate grief and, and be transformed into joy and courage and, and active hope. 
So I was going to just write the first chapter about me and my experience with snow, and then um, each other chapter, which would be told through the prism of an emotion. So I had the idea for it to be an emotional book early on. Would be going and asking really interesting people like Missy Higgins and Charlie Pickering and so on what their take was, how they'd got through. Uh, only I started writing it in October 2019. So. Uh, there was no way I could avoid the beast. The beast was coming. <laughs> and, uh, and that's why I ended up personifying it, because like Danny, I, I felt stalked as well. And then, um, and so the book became a memoir of trying to write a book about climate emotions during this extraordinary period where, where frankly, the future arrived with an apocalyptic thud. And, so it's two-thirds of the way through the book, I was very much writing it as it was happening. And I'd written a chapter about why we never think disaster's going to happen to us, you know, um, why even when we're warned, we just don't think that it's going to come. And I had all these evolutionary biologists and um, psychologists as the backdrop, but I was still telling stories. And I was guilty of the same thing. Mm. I was thinking as I was writing it, no, nah, the fire's not going to come to me. I better go visit someone who's in the fire because that'll be the closest it gets to me. My mum lives in Malakuta. So um, three quarters of the way through the book, uh, it takes a very different turn again because not only is this book personal by that stage, but I'm watching on television as the world sees these images out of... A film. I mean, was I the only one who thought they'd, like, they'd fallen into the plot of a film? Uh, so my book actually took on that almost, um, yeah, unbelievably epic narrative. <laughs> Jonik has mentioned the world attention on these fires. In fact, the world's attention was on a particular piece that you wrote that went viral mm. that actually sparked this book. Can you tell us a bit about the, this piece and, and what happened? There's actually a, a lovely story about that piece. So I had written a few days before I wrote that piece, I'd written a piece about Omnicide, the killing of everything. And that piece, for the first time in my life, you know, I'm an academic, I write pieces that maybe 12 other people read if I'm lucky. Um, that piece went very viral and the beautiful Scott Stevens at the ABC who published it called me and he said, you know, Danny, I love you and I know you've got lots of integrity, but I've seen the best writers uh, get seduced by virality, want to write the next piece that a million people are going to read, and I don't want that to happen to you, so I want you to write just a little, very personal piece that maybe only 12 people will read. And so I wrote about Jimmy. Um, so Who's Jimmy? Jimmy, uh, well, I'll take a step back. So on when I said that we had evacuated the animals to places that were safe, um, as soon as I say what I'm about to say, we have a living example of the difference between retrospective vision and prospective vision. Uh, the Katie and Jimmy, who were two pigs who we had rescued, were taken to Cabago. And at that point, we thought we were under danger and Cabago, you now know the word Malacuda, everybody knows where Cabago is or what happened in Cabago. And on the 31st of December, while my partner Leonard was driving in a truck to Sydney with all of our belongings, I went outside to 
take the gas away from the house to roll it away so that if the fire came, it didn't explode. And when I got back, my prosthetic, my phone, which I always had, you know, welded to my hand, I'd left inside, and there was a missed call from Marilyn, who had the pigs, and I called her, and she said, it's all gone, it's all gone, and that Katie and Jimmy were dead. 36 hours later, I got a text from her saying, I found Jimmy, and I assumed that what she meant was that she had found Jimmy's body, but a few moments later, a little um, granular video came in of this pig with a black nose <coughs> getting closer and closer to the camera with Marilyn's just beautiful voice saying, I know, I know, I know, as Jimmy approached. Uh, we couldn't get down to pick Jimmy up for a week because the fires were raging and all the roads were closed apart from for emergency vehicles. When we drove down to get him, he was a very different being. He was deeply traumatised and we brought him home. And we had to witness him moving through his grief and his trauma, the loss of his sister with whom he had spent every night of his life lying side by side. And my perception was that it was only when he came home, back to his home, that he could come to terms or in the way that, I know I'm using very anthropomorphic language, but we witnessed him as another being, not as a human being, but as another being. What was it like to have confronted mm. the apocalypse and what was it like to come out after, come out of it as a survivor? And so in that period when I didn't yet know whether he was going to live or not, I wrote about his grief. Even though there was an enormous amount of material being written about the fires during the fires, as you said, the world's eyes were on the fires in Australia, very little was being written about the experience that beings other than humans were having, that it's not just us who are facing this situation. Of course, we conceptualise it in a different way and we have hockey, gra hockey stick graphs that tell us what's happening with climate, but Trees are feeling the water being taken from their roots. Animals are recognising that the flora around them is changing, that the temperatures that are condition, the condition of possibility for their survival, you know, the microbes in the soil, they're all having an experience of what's going on. And it was tremendously important to me, given that of course, they speak multiple languages, but we're incapable for the most part of listening to those languages. And so it was very important to me to somehow convey their first-person experience of what was going on. And that was when I wrote the piece about Jimmy's grief. Hmm. Thank you. What's really interesting is that I have in front of me scientists and an academic. And of course, for me, science and academia is about facts. It's about uh, intellectual argument, it can sometimes be dry. But what's extraordinary about these two books is that despite the background, or perhaps because of the background, you focus on the emotional effects uh, of climate change and of the fires. Jonica, why is this such an emotional book for a scientist? Well, obviously, um, there was something in the ether because at the time I thought, 
So what triggered me to write the book? Obviously, you heard about my experience, but I had no intention of writing a book. I had no, yeah, I had no intention of doing that. And I just suddenly, in 2019, started having these conversations with other people, people I didn't even know very well, and all this emotion was coming out of them. Some of them scientists, others just people, you know, looking at their homes. And I was thinking, God, I'm not the only one struggling with this. And I, and so, how do I find a way through? And all the books so far have reflected what you've said. They've been factual. You know, they're full of all the dire news, which just makes you feel worse. Um, or they're, here's what we've got to do. But if you're not Mike Cannon-Brooks, it's a lot harder to do some of those things that are in there. Where was the book that spoke to me emotionally? Where was the book that told a story so that um, it, I didn't feel dreading reading it? I could go, oh, you know, it's a page turner. But through that journey that I could also learn how to answer that question, how do I, how do I live a good and happy life under the weight of this fearsome knowledge? So when I, I very quickly made the decision to write the book and it was like, well, it's going to be told through the prism of emotions for this reason. Now, it's interesting that, of course, I didn't know that in parallel, Danny was also writing a book that was more emotional and there's one other. And interestingly, they've all been written by women. And I think it does actually reflect um, different coping strategies. All the books I've described that have been very fact-heavy, most of them have been written by men. And it's interesting, when I actually was on the journey of the book, because I meet a lot of interesting, amazing people, all of whom are incredibly emotional. I mean, Missy Higgins, I cried in the interview with her, Charlie Pickering, who was supposed to make me laugh, you know, there was a chapter on Huber, and he sort of has tears going down at one point. But uh, everyone I asked, um, you know, what's your primary emotion when I say climate change? And what was really interesting is it was a bit gendered. Most of the men said, um, it makes me really angry. Um, in fact, I asked my partner, Robin Williams, from the science show, I said, do you feel climate grief? And he said, no, I feel universal rage. We can't let the bastards win. Um, and most of the women felt sadness. So I think different books do speak to different people. And yes, yeah, so for me, it made every sense that every chapter should be under the, under the prism of an emotion or a uh, mental state. That's why you do have, you know, courage, joy, humour, um, all these really positive and pro-social emotions. I actually finish with acceptance and pride and meaning, which got added in after the fires um, became so personal. But but I think it's what we need now. I think, I think um, if we can't process this emotionally, then we're stuck. We get stuck in some of those stages of grief, being depression, denial, denial in particular, it's all too hard, or, or toxic anger. But if we can face it, if we acknowledge it and we move through it, then it, it can be a, a motivating factor and a life-changing, life-enhancing reflection, I think. And, and, you know, like any grief, like if your partner's diagnosed with cancer, which is one of the stories in my book, um, it's very clarifying. Mm -hmm. And you do whatever you can to save the one you love. You don't turn away in denial. You go, I'm going to enjoy every minute with them now, but I'm also going to take all the medicine and do all the things I need to do to try and stave off whatever that cancer might have mm. in store. And it's a fabulous analogy for climate action for a lifetime. You don't think, what am I afraid of? Mm. You think, 
what would I do to save the one I love? And then you've got a motivation for a lifetime. Danny, you're nodding your head there. Does this resonate with you? Uh, very much so about the move away from denial. And I have often thought in those terms, you know, a few years ago, my, my daughter was very unwell, was very sick. And I remember the singularity of focus that I had, that there was no turning away. There was flooding yourself with knowledge so that you could be in action. And it strikes me that that, that willingness to turn does require a type of emotional resilience. I mean, where I slightly disagree with, with Jonica or differ rather than disagreeing is I certainly felt a great deal of murderous rage, and I still do. Um, Lots of people do. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the points. You can't assume that the way you feel is the same as everyone else, so I hope I canvassed a lot of different ideas, but yeah. Yeah, and well, I just meant from a gender perspective, but one of the, one of the problems that I have with the way in which we're or the languages that we have for our emotions is, particularly during the fires, and I think this is true for many people, emotions aren't monochrome. You didn't, it wasn't just grief or love or rage. There was this complex admixture of emotions all at the same time. And I've been very struck moving through this and watching others move through it as well by what I've come to think of as our emotional muscular sclerosis. Just how the poverty of our capacity to hold difficult emotions. And, you know, here we are at a writers' festival and I've been thinking about it in terms of the types of stories that we are habituated to reading or watching or listening to, particularly watching, that they tend to have a pretty simplistic plot structure. You know, we're taken to the point of tension, difficult emotions, and held there just long enough to sell the product, right? Just long enough to be uh, captivated. And then there's some type of heroic intervention, either by, either, by, either by the heroic technological intervention or by the heroic theological dimension or the heroic human intervention. And then we're taken back down into more soporific simple, easy emotions that we can tolerate. And so we don't have a lot of emotional muscle to stay present in the way because we're not talking about the death of a loved one. We're talking about the death of all of the loved ones. And we're talking about, you know, we're not just talking about something out there. We're talking about here. You know, what are the conditions of possibility for us being here at this festival, that water is running through the taps, that there are roads that can bring us here, that there are electronic systems that can sell tickets. You know, this is one of the, I think, one of the mistakes that we make about climate, that somehow because we've got this split between there's culture here and there's nature here, that it's going to happen to nature and that human systems, well, they'll just keep on going. They're completely embedded with each other. You know, the conditions of possibility for us living the lives that we find nourishing and worthwhile is, to go back to what Jonica was talking about, is a climate system that has been this beautific environment within which we've been able to thrive. 
And that's under threat. And I, so I think, you know, to come back to your question about emotions, you know, when she, uh, after she wrote Origins of Totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt received a letter from another philosopher, Eric Verglum, where he accused her of being too emotional. And you can imagine how much she loved that. And she wrote back and she said, um, in her wonderfully imperious way, I'm perfectly aware of the tradition of sine ira et studio, without anger or fondness. And I consciously departed from that tradition because it was methodologically inappropriate to the subject matter that I was writing about, which was the concentration camps that are not happening on the moon, but in the midst of human society. And it's the same with what's going on. It's not happening out there. It's happening here. It's happening here. It's happening here. It's happening in the people that you love, in the places that you love. And so this notion that we could write without it being saturated with what it feels like to be faced, confronted, with the threat to what makes our lives possible, to think that one could write that without an emotional response, without it being saturated with emotion, is to write as if we were writing about what was happening on the moon, not here on Earth. Can I get you to hold that thought? That's an excellent thought to switch to Jonica. Jonica, you've got a particularly emotional part in your book, which I think would... Um, would go well uh, now. If you could just read us, it's a, it's a short excerpt which really brings us right into the middle of the fires. Over to you, Jonica. Yeah, I guess it gives a bit of a sense of the, of the book too, because it is very much a story. Yes, these, um, these uh, ideas are suffused through it, but in the end, it is a story. So this is the chapter that <laughs> I never thought I'd write. It's a chapter called Horror because it was the only emotion I could think of to describe that day in Malakuta. I went in um, when I could, which was a few weeks later, and so I, I just interviewed Mum's friends, actually. Um, in fact, it was just conversations, and I asked if I could record them, and then when I came to write it, I just put together six different accounts. So it's just six different accounts that give you a sort of a movie-esque um, picture of just being there that day. So we, this story is I call Nicholas and the Disaster Movie Dash. He's in his 30s um, and he's the son of a friend of my mum's. And uh, so don't forget, we're in Malakuta, it's pitch black, um, there's, uh, there's smoke everywhere and he's one of the few people who's decided to stay and defend the houses actually in the town, they're not out in the forest. Um, and very few did do that because um, they were told that they would not get any aid from the fire tracks which were surrounding all the people on the beaches. Um, and he had a walkie-talkie so he could talk to his father-in-law who was also staying to defend. Um, but the, the, the walkie-talkie was useless once the fire really came and the roar of a 747 was on his head. Unexpectedly on his own, fortified with the desire to protect the life he's built, Nicholas enters survival mode, running up and down the street, fighting spot fires with buckets of water, occasionally a hose. At one point, a power line came down across the road in front of my house and it all started sparking. 
oh God, my hand is at my mouth listening. And then everything was blazing behind me and everything in front of me was on fire as well. And I just thought, well, I can't go inside the house because all the houses are burning. And then I thought, well, if things get too bad, I'll just zip down to the beach on my bike and I'll kind of hide under the cliff face. That was my genius plan. Good one, I nod. It worked? Well, not really, he laughs. So I jumped on my bike and then I head to the beach. Like a scene from a movie, he pedals like the wind down a corridor of fire. All the houses ablaze, all the tea trees ablaze, flames flying four times their height, fireballs arcing overhead. It was just raging through the air and I get down there and there's a staircase that goes down onto the beach and that was on fire. And I ditched my bike and then I ran down the burning stairs but the fire actually came down the cliff face and the beach was on fire, all the tussocks. And I saw them start burning down the beach and heading into town and I was like, holy shit. And I couldn't go that way and it was burning down the cliff face so I ran to where the boat ramp is. I got up to the top of my bike, it was burnt to a crisp and then another front came through but on the other side and it went all the way down to the boat ramp and I was kind of stuck in the middle then so I had to run through the golf course. My jaw is on the floor as Nicholas describes running from the flames ending up doing a two kilometre high speed loop around the back of the fire front to the other end of Terra Nova Drive checking in on his father-in-law then sprinting back to his end to pick up a bucket again where if anything conditions are worse. There was fire everywhere. Pretty much every fence was on fire. And then the bushes, trees, houses, and then it kind of escalated. Houses would catch on fire and then the next house catch on fire. Amid this sensory and emotional overload with 10 houses burning around him, Nicholas's brain encodes a new knowledge, the dreadful keening sound a home makes just before it dies. It starts chuffing like it's burning on the inside. It starts chuffing and you can see it. The windows start to bend and then bam, the windows pop and it, it just explodes like a freaking bomb. And then the thought in your head, like the, the animals, all the trees, Nicholas looks up grieving. It's like all the things, the beauty this place has to offer is burning in front of you and it's out of your control, you know? There's nothing, really. You're, you're just, just a person with two buckets. Hmm. Just a person. <laughs> just a person with two buckets. So there's the horror. And then well, Danica, well, oh, there's... Oh, sorry, can I just add to that? Because I know Danny will tell her story, but one of the things when I came to read that aloud and pick out the, um, the reading... What an incredibly powerful positive metaphor that two buckets is, because in the end with climate change, we're all just a person with two buckets. Um, and really that's what you bring, right? You just bring your two buckets and some of our buckets are bigger than others, but you just do that. It turned out that Nicholas actually saved his house with those two buckets and, two, and, and five others of his neighbours' houses as well. So you just don't know what your action will bring about. And that's why I think it's such a powerful metaphor. We can all but try and just bring our two buckets along. And Danny, so Jonica's moved from the horror of the fires to the hope of what an individual can do. And in your book too, you examine hope. I was wondering if you could read a segment from your book mm. in which you do discuss hope. 
I have a much more ambivalent relationship with hope, I think, than... Oh, no, than I have a pretty <laughs> ambivalent relationship with hope. But active hope is something that I've found really works for me. So I'm going to read just a couple of paragraphs from the beginning of the chapter because otherwise it doesn't make sense. But the scene that I'm describing took place in the middle of the evacuation. When I hear the cry of black cockatoos overhead, I think I must be mistaken. People around here say that they come before the rain. For sure, no rain is coming today. A few years back, my friend told me that Aboriginal people in some parts of Australia believe that black cockatoos accompany the spirits of loved ones after they have passed into the land of the dead. Ever since, they have carried the trace of death and numinosity for me. They are huge and loud and glorious, and they occupy the sky with a sense of entitlement that leaves me feeling a little deferential towards them. Not that I begrudge them that. Deference seems like the appropriate attitude to hold in the presence of the ancient and the magnificent. Even when the direction of their flight looks random to me, they always seem to have the sharp sense of where they are heading. One afternoon about three years ago, Elle and I were sitting with a neighbour over a bowl of olives and a glass of wine when a mob of what must have been 40 or 50 flew across the valley, escarpment to escarpment. We didn't see them all at once, seven coming from the east, 12 coming from over the river from the west, another 20 coming to view after a few seconds' delay until they joined up in a loose but unmistakable formation. Their cries drowned out our conversation, but even if they hadn't, the majesty of the sight would have commanded our silence. Some birds have a way of putting you in your place. My neighbours tell me how bolstered they feel to see black cockatoos. Maybe it's going to rain and maybe the rain will dampen the fire. I'm not sure what to say. They seem to be clinging to the possibility of reprieve. I don't want to be unkind. I doubt the comment rather than make mention of the other symbolism, which is far more present to me just now. I'm not much into what I see as idle hope, but then I can hardly claim to be spotless myself. We all need to hope for something. Do I hope that it's going to rain tonight so much, in fact, that it will douse a fire that has been raging across several thousand hectares for two months? No. Do I hope that we humans will find our way to making the changes we need to make to avoid mass extinction and the complete breakdown of civilization? Yes, I've developed a highly ambivalent relationship with hope these days. If I hold on to it at all, it's mostly as a strategic act, a way of orienting myself in the direction most likely to keep me in action. Perhaps there are people on this planet with the capacity to stay in action and kindness even after they have let go of all hope. I want it to be true that there are people with that kind of fortitude. But for now, and for me, those two hope that our actions might prevent at least some of the death and the loss, and my capacity to commit myself to taking those actions are still joined at the hip. As climate justice essayist Marie Anais Hegler puts it, if you want to have hope, 
go and earn it. I want to be totally straight here, though. I'm not always up to reality. I have also been seduced by the type of magical thinking hope that promises an antidote to the noxious brew of fear and helplessness that has at times consumed me. In early December, when a neighbour pointed out that we needed to keep an eye on the large and expanding fire to the south, not only did I hope that by some chance it would stay away, I went so far as believing that if I did not pay attention to it, it would go away. Not unlike the baby wombat, who over the winter and spring months would come out with her mama in the afternoon and early evening, and meander in the large paddocks where the horses like to spend most of their time. From a distance, we could observe her dark, round body waddling around, never too far from her mama. But if we came too close, she would sneak her face in behind her mama's much larger, similarly round body. She could not see us, so obviously we could not see her. It's not a bad strategy, so long as you have a larger, wiser, more astute being nearby who will reliably jostle you into a safe, dry burrow as soon as the danger actually materialises. We humans, being endlessly creative, allow fantasy to play that role. And I must uh, think I can be. Thank you very much. Thank you, Danny. I think I can be endlessly creative in that sense as well. There are so many more questions to ask about these books, but now it's your turn. Hi, my name is David, and thank you both very much. Um, this is a man question, I'm afraid. I, I, I wonder how people will look back on our last 20 years of inaction when they write books about what we should have done and why we didn't. And as a man, I look at the hanging chads in Florida denying Al Gore, the Adani mine deciding an Australian election, COVID coming on the heels of this to take people's attention away by something that seemed like a bigger disaster. But I wonder how you both will reflect back on what the generation ahead will think were our failures in this. Can I just say that I don't think we need to even project to the generation ahead. I think you've got to ask yourself, what will my future self say to me? You know, you don't even have to think ahead with that. Um, I think, for me, you answer your own question. We will not be judged kindly. But having said that, toward the end, because my memoir sort of, it, yes, it starts with the snow and everything, but it, it does cover similar territory to Danny's. Mine actually starts date-wise October 2019 and finishes in lockdown April um, 2020. But I am more strangely hopeful um, since the events of the last year, not because I think that we'll avoid a certain amount of catastrophic warming, we're locked into that, let's face it. Uh, but what gives me a lot of um, encouragement, joy, is seeing all the pro-social emotions come out in people. Like, even in the fires when, when you know, it looked like scenes from the road, and everyone was kind of, you know, going, oh, which apocalyptic film have I fallen into this week? Um, we didn't turn on each other cannibalistically. <laughs> you know, 20% of us are probably on the sociopath spectrum, but the 80% of us were overwhelmed by an urge to, to do something, to help. And 
these emotions that evolve to make us cooperate to survive. I mean, you've got laughter, which I talk about in the book. What does it do? It releases bonding chemicals that allow you to all bond and work together and get rid of stress. Uh, music even does that. But, but some really particular emotions like love, Pride, pride is a group emotion. You can't feel proud of someone. You know, we mostly feel proud of other people. And, and what is pride? It's when you do right by your group. And so what I have seen in the last year with these, with these first the fires and then the pandemic is that it forces you to focus on what is meaningful in your life and forget the 20% who are in the sociopath end. For the rest of us, it's community, it's doing right by others. We don't follow COVID rules because we're bloody compliant. I hate that we've got commentators calling it that. It's because we care. We actually want to try and stop other people in our community getting sick. And I think we will look back on, the twen on 2020 as a bit of a social turning point. Yes, there are a lot of challenges ahead that we may as well be emotionally prepared for. But I think we will look back on that and I hope that the next generation coming through are getting something really meaningful out of having a real purpose in life other than going on Instagram and looking at your large lips, you know? So I think, I think we will look back on this as a real turning point. Danny, what do you think? I think young people are already tremendously angry. I don't yeah. think that we have to wait for future generations. And I, I agree with, with your answer, Jonica. And I also, I would like us humans to learn a little humility because we, we always look back at those who were unable to see the emergent catastrophe, whether it was the Shoah or whether it was what was happening with the removal of Indigenous children from their families in this country. And we look back and we think, how could they not have seen? But let's take a more trans-historical view and understand that there's something about the way we are, we are embedded in our normal habits of living. You know, I spoke about the regularised trope of the story, this constant refrain that we have that there is going to be a technological solution because there's always been a technological solution in the last 50 years. So what I would like for us, and I think that anger is going to be a completely legitimate response, but also they also will have emergent catastrophes that they are unable to see. Every generation has emergent catastrophes that they're unable to see. And I think that if we could assume a little more humility that we too would not be able to see. You know, we're all, like, you know, Jonica and I have both talked about the threshold that we crossed, but we're all somewhere on this range of crossing thresholds. We all have our different temporalities of it becoming an embodied reality. And so I think along with the anger about why didn't we act, that, that a little kindness to each other, that facing this type of existential threat is tremendously difficult. And when we hold each other, when we hold each other in a recognition of the difficulty, then I think we are able to somewhat transcend that historical, repeated problem of not being able to see the violence that's right in front of your face. Thank you. So kindest, 
care and love. Thank you so much, Danny. Thank, thank you so much, Jonica. Thank you, Adam and Jess. And thank you to our audience. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.